From McMaster University, I'm John Preston, and you're listening to Big Ideas for a Changing World. In this series, you'll hear from researchers from McMaster's Faculty of Engineering and beyond, who are creating innovative solutions to our world's greatest challenges. I have the chance to see some of these solutions up close as the faculty's Associate Dean for Research and External Relations. Today, we'll explore the possibility of making the surfaces we come across in our everyday lives repellent to bacteria and viruses. Can things like door handles, packaging, and railings on buses be treated with a coating that disinfects around the clock? McMaster engineering researchers, Leila Salamani and Tohi Dadar, join us today to talk about their invention, which does exactly that. You'll hear about how the idea came to be and where it's gonna go from here in the age of COVID-19. With that, a warm welcome to Leila and Tohi on Big Ideas for a Changing World. I'll ask each of you to introduce yourselves, beginning with Layla. Can you tell us uh, what your background is? Yes, so I'm an electrical engineer by training. I have all my degrees in electrical engineering, but I am now an associate professor in engineering physics and the School of Biomedical Engineering. And my research is focused on advanced materials with applications in biomedical engineering. Uh, with a focus on biosensors and also smart surfaces that will be the topic of discussions here. Thanks for uh, having us today, John. I'm Tohit Didar. I'm an assistant professor at the Department of Mechanical Engineering, School of Biomedical Engineering, and also a member of Institute for Infectious Disease Research. My background, I'm, my undergrad master's are in mechanical engineering and my PhD in biomedical engineering. And uh, my lab's focus is on biointerfaces and surface engineering for applications in biosensing implants in vivo and in vitro biomaterials. Let's get right to the discussion. Last sure. December, a research project that you're both co-leading made international headlines in the media. Leila, can you maybe start off and tell us what is the science that sits behind RepelRap? Yes, yeah, so repel wrap is a plastic wrap that repels all kinds of contamination. So liquid contamination, microbial contamination. And so the way it works, it uses what we call hierarchical structures in order to, to create omnophobicity. So what really that means is that you roughen the surface, but not at the length scale that you can see, at the nanoscale and the microscale. So these are the length scales of biomolecules and the length scale of microorganisms. So length scale of things like DNA up to the length scale of things like bacteria. And so we, we really tune these materials so that they can interact in a way with things like viruses or bacteria that, that they repel them. So uh, you basically, you know, put your contaminated hand uh, on these surfaces and those contaminations will stay on your hand, but they do not like to transfer to, to the repel wrap. I always give this analogy of what this looks like. I always mention that this looks like um, a landscape with rolling hills. Those rolling hills are the microstructures. And then imagine some trees on that rolling hill. Those trees are the nanoparticles and some flowers on those trees or, or leaves those are the, the molecular structure we have. The combination of this three, these three hierarchies creates that unique structure that, that gives us that application. But, but it's not only the uniqueness and the structure we have, but also the flexibility of the surfaces that we, we make. One of the major applications is in, is in food packaging. 
uh, so we have these flexible, basically plastics that are used in, in packaging food. And you know, contamination in food packaging is a major issue. More than 400,000 people die every year because of foodborne illnesses. It's, it's, a, it's a major problem. So the fact that this is a flexible surface that could be used as a packaging and it could prevent adhesion of bacteria uh, or, or pathogens onto the surface is a major application for this wrap. And the reason is mainly also because most of these contaminations are introduced to the food during the packaging from somebody who is, has contaminated hands or a surface during packaging is contaminated and the, the packaging material pick up those, those pathogens and then introduce it to the, um, to the packaging. So again, we see a, a, a very good um, application here for, for food packaging. It sounds like a very complicated technology to use for something that you might've thought was simple. Is the market there in terms of spoilage of foods large enough? And is your invention cost-effective enough to really have an impact in that market? Basically, that's probably one of the most important areas of applications for this technology because already a lot of the food is packaged using the same kind of plastic that we're using as our base material. And what we do to this plastic is very simple modification. So we do a very simple coating. And once you, know, you do shrink wrapping or packaging your, your meats or other products, that kind of hierarchical structuring evolves. So uh, we've been, you know, getting a lot of inquiries from people who make food packaging. We've even, you know, received boxes and boxes of plastics for a long time. They were in my house during the pandemic, but now they're in the lab of, you know, rolls of plastic that they, they want us to, to treat so that, you know, they can have this rep repellent surfaces on the inside and outside the package. So it's important to reduce cross-contamination that can go on your meat, but also on the outside of your package. Nowadays, I think people feel this a lot more that you don't want the delivery guy to sneeze on his hand and, you know, touch that, that surface and then transmit that potential infectious disease, right? So it's important to have that kind of uh, repellency on the inside and outside the package. Is there a way to transfer these similar coatings onto other materials, both relevant for COVID-19, but also for other applications? Yeah, I can answer that, although I think that's Toy's favorite uh, topic. Um, so so I, I think there, there are two ways that we're currently working with the Surface team uh, on doing that. One is we're developing a spray that instead of having you know these these coatings on this large plastic surface you imagine you chop up this into a particle so you have this hierarchical uh you know micro particles that has these wrinkles and these nanoparticles on it and this can be sprayed to a variety of surfaces so it's not just these original plastic wraps but it can go anywhere but also there are molding based techniques that that we can use to mold the same structure onto other surfaces that can then be laminated again on top of other surfaces. So those are exactly the things that we're working on to make this technology more versatile. We can say that it very effectively works on a similar virus. So I remember when we started this, Professor Oshkar said, you know, we're not gonna go to SARS-CoV-2 unless you show 
three log repellency, so reducing the viruses by a thousand fold. And so, you know, we recently surpassed that quality control check with a similar virus. So we are going to start the experiment with coronaviruses and end up testing it with uh, SARS-CoV-2. So we now have a self-cleaning wrap, which not only will protect foods, but also is quite promising in terms of rejecting the SARS-CoV-2 virus uh, and droplets that may contain it. Have you thought about how the self-cleaning wrap might be used with communities reopening and enable maybe the economy to reopen more than it could without having this tool in its arsenal? So we think that alongside frequent disinfection and hand washing, Repel Wrap has a good role to play here. Once you are in this environment, in this the situation of the pandemic, you always think about you know, all the places that your hand touches. And we call those high-touch surface skips. And research shows, for example, if you're in, a, in an airplane for four hours, every surface of that airplane, every high-touch surface gets contaminated if there is one source of contamination. Then, you know, you can do disinfection, but how frequently can you disinfect? You know, daily, couple of times a day, but what happens during the time in between? So if you have something like the repel wrap that remains clean, within that duration where things are disinfected, then that's a really promising uh, technology. And so we think, you know, in public transport, for example, in air transport, uh, in, you know, schools reopening, in hospitals, in long-term, anywhere that there are high-touch surfaces, the, the repel wrap could potentially have a role to play in reducing contamination via surfaces. That must involve quite a collaborative effort to be able to move across as engineers and to be able to begin to test against viral infections. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that process gets initiated? Is is McMaster a unique place in terms of the capacity to be able to do that? Yeah, so I guess we're very lucky to, you know, to work at a university where we have a strong medical school and also a strong engineering school. And so for our bacterial studies, we were fortunate we could just send one email, do one meeting and go to uh, someone like Eric Brown and get these experiments done and Institute for Infectious Disease Research. It takes the infrastructure, but it takes the people who are collaborative and entrepreneurial to move through those centers and, and get things done. And also, again, with the viruses, you know, again, similar experience where we work with Professor Ashkar in immunology and who who has been really terrific and again uh, has helped us you know throughout the the pandemic one of the most experienced postdocs in in that lab was dedicated on working on repel wrap which is really really terrific that we really had that opportunity and really the people who who are putting collaborations as you know high priority how is research in a pandemic different than research before a pandemic there are a lot of challenges, you know, like most of these work that we're doing, it requires more than one people to do this at the same time. So now we're working, for example, with Dr. Ashtar's lab, and we have the surfaces, we have developed new methods of how we can mimic transfer of viruses by using 
contact printing, different plastics that they are not familiar with. And our students can't go to their lab to do this. So we make videos and then we send those videos along with the samples. So the person opens, sometimes we do video conferencing with them. So that, and, and this actually makes things a little bit, you know, harder and sometimes you need to repeat the experiments more to get to where it's perfectly done. And, and that's the new thing that we're trying to all learn and move forward with. And that's, I felt like for the past two and a half, three months, we were working harder than before. I don't know, everybody was kind of in a rush that it, this needs to be done and this needs to happen. Although we had a lot of, a lot of um, you know, challenges that we need to face, how to do these experiments in the new circumstances. So now I guess we have mastered a lot of those for the past one and a half, three months. We have learned on how to have people work individually, interact less, but at the same time, collaboratively work together so that something could, could, could move forward at the project that we want. And I guess this is with every group that are doing COVID research or they were trying that they needed to go through this sort of process to make sure that things are good. But, but we're actually getting really good results now and that's, that's what matters at this point. And we're very happy about the very recent ones that we just got. Tohid, the science behind this is fascinating because there's a lot of fascinating research that takes place at many universities. What's the secret to catching the interest of investors and companies uh, so that they're actually willing to, to work with you to bring this through to commercialization? Yeah, that's a great question, actually. And we always struggle with that, I guess. We always think that there's a great idea, but then attracting attention is the challenge. To make more attention of industry to, to kind of deliver the message that this is a platform technology, not a single technology. So it's not a single patent. There, there's going to be more patents. So it's going to be around the portfolio of patents. The second is we really push to, to publish these in good journals. I think that also uh, makes a difference here too. The, the third thing to me, I guess, is working with our media team, both at, at the Faculty of Engineering and also at the university. And they, they really help delivered a message as well. And then, uh, you know, this work was featured by CNN Health as well. And that, that going that far, it actually helps to, to really attract uh, attention. And so I guess it's a combination of these three factors, but it, it really starts with a good technology, good work that's, the, that's novel, but also making sure that the industry is going to be happy about it in a way that it's simple to, to scale it up and move it there. It's not so we've got an audience of young engineering students and potentially some others. Both of you have done exceptionally well rather early in your academic careers. What advice do you have for students or researchers who would like to follow in your footsteps and explore biomedical engineering and in particular doing what you've been able to do, which is to not settle for either working on applications or on cutting edge science, but actually melding the two together to have really outstanding impact on society. I think engineering for me is a career that has allowed me to use creative ways to solve problems. And for me, that's what this is all about, to, to think of, you know, what are the problems, you know, how could I solve it using, as, as you said, cutting edge science and, and, you know, doing that creatively. So kind of thinking outside the box. 
So I think that's what I would encourage people to do, uh, to focus on problem solving with creativity. And I think engineering is a great field for that. You've mentioned that students were involved. You asked for volunteers. Can you tell us about the students and the role that they played in this research? Thank you for bringing up that question. We actually, other than the fact that this was a, a multidisciplinary project collaboration between engineering and health sciences, we also had the students, I guess, great students. They were heroes to come and work in these circumstances, especially after COVID-19. And they also had different backgrounds. Sarah Imani, who is a chemical engineer, who worked on the project. Rod, uh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to pronounce his last name properly. Rod? McLaughlin? McLaughlin, yeah, sorry. I never call him with his last name, mm -hmm. so I guess that's really So Rod also, who's coming from engineering physics, had, had a really big impact. He came and did a lot of experiments uh, through the pandemic, volunteered to do this. And this happened while we were sitting at home and just trying to manage things through here. I guess those are the people in the front lines who made these happen. Amit Shakir, who is a materials engineer who actually did uh, helped with a lot of um, design of the experiments and so on. Leila Wahedi, who is a, a postdoc in Dr. Ashkar's lab, she actually did a lot of great job, came to the lab, sometimes on the weekends even, and then help with the projects. And Leila is, is a, is a uh, I guess, has background in bio and virology. I mean, material, Sarah, chemical engineering, Rod in engineering physics. And they all have, they're coming from different backgrounds. And I think that's what makes our team unique here as well. So that they're working in different disciplines. I, I keep telling students that at the beginning, you shouldn't understand yourselves. That's a good thing. Like you talk different languages, but then when they become synergized, then the new really great stuff start happening. So a little bit of fight at the beginning to understand each other, but then really great things happen at the end. What I would suggest for students, and I guess I'm going to say it in one sentence, even one word. I keep telling it to all the students as well. Make sure you love what you're doing. If that could be generated in you, if you really have the passion and the love in what you're trying to, to do, then nothing can stop you. The challenge is finding actually what you love to do. And that's always the, the thing, right? So some people come and experiment and they feel like if research is for them or not, or they need to switch and research, do something else. And our job, I think, as uh, supervisors is to make sure to create that sort of passion and curiosity and I would say love in them towards their, their projects so that they can really focus on that. If that's generated, everything is gonna be easier. But other than that, have a vision. Think what you're going to be in 10 years from now. And that's the question I always ask when I interview students and everybody struggles because we don't know. But at least think about it now. Do you want to be a professor sitting at, at the university? Do you want to be a, a great entrepreneur? Do you want to work in public sector? What do you want to do and know from now? Or at least try to figure it out what, what that's going to be. And then if you do all of this, when you find out what's that love and what's the vision, when you go to bed at night, imagine where you're going to get and what you want to be. And then keep seeing yourself in that place. And as you keep practicing it, and that's going to push you to work hard for it, then there's no boundaries. There's nothing that you can't achieve. So Leila, we've talked about how the pandemic transformed the way that you conducted research. It provided an immediacy in terms of having to get the result completed and and put in a form that could actually make a difference with respect to the pandemic. 
hopefully in the not too distant future, there will be treatments and there will be a vaccine and COVID-19 will not be the tremendous challenge that it is today. Do you see research as going back to the way it was or do you think your research program is now permanently shifted? We worked on, you know, point of care diagnostics, not exactly related to this, but for a long time, right? And yet now everybody feels there's no home-based test for COVID-19, right? Similar in surfaces. A lot of people have built these great surfaces, but yet there's no commercial product that that you could go buy in the, the supermarket or Canadian Tire, whatever. That just makes me think, you know, I do want to work in a way that of these things that I work in the lab makes it to the market. We don't know what the next crisis is going to be. It might be infectious disease, it might be energy, but I think if everybody thinks like that, we're a lot more advanced. You know, it's important to, to publish great papers because that's how you disseminate great science that's kind of foundational to great technologies. But I think it's really important to think about translation and facilitate that. Perhaps I want to do a better job at working with my students who might be interested in taking the, those technologies to the market or, or developing scalable technologies up front so that you know there are not so many challenges that at this point we realize how come there's so many of these technologies in the in the research literature, but not so many of them out there. So, so definitely it changes my vision for doing impactful, in a way, entrepreneurial research. Okay. This is remarkable research that doesn't fall into any one discipline, but I wouldn't call it interdisciplinary. I would call it multidisciplinary in the sense that it really does require experts from many fields to collaborate closely and to really inject their expertise, their core expertise and their disciplinary expertise to make it work. So how do you go from being, thinking back not that long ago when both of you were PhD students, how do you go from having to learn all of the content, all the deep knowledge that's required to become an expert within a discipline and then develop the courage to sort of jump out from that and take on challenges that are outside of your discipline? When I finished my master's, I was working on micro nanotechnologies for, I remember I was working on creating micro channels on glass that could be used in microfluidic devices. But I was in, a, in purely in a non-bio related labs. Then I kept reading that the applications are all in bio. So this could be used for point of care diagnostics, cell culture, organs on chips. And this was my master. So I was so frustrated that I wanted to see this. I completely switched. I started in biomedical engineering, my PhD. So I remember the first day that I entered my PhD lab at McGill, people were culturing stem cells there. And I had even not used a pipette until then. So I didn't know how to like, efficiently use a pipette, right? I'm a mechanical engineer. I always joke about our department and say that when I get undergrads from McKinsey, I have to train them on how, how to pipette things, which is not a bad thing. But I didn't know. But again, I guess one part goes back to what I mentioned. If you're passionate about it, you're going to learn. You shouldn't be scared, so you should open your horizons and try to be open to things and then go towards it. But the second more practical way comes back to experiential learning, right? That we're trying to also expand at McMaster. There is not a single book, a single department or a single major that can help you these days. 
it's all about experiential learning. You need to find the, the people, the expertise, the papers that are published that have done multiple work, learn about it and bring them all together in a more practical way. And that sounds scary to begin with, but it actually adds more to your skills, makes you a more valuable person to be hired later on. But at the same time, it's challenging, but always, I guess, excellent things happen because you're taking on big challenges. Let's maybe expand upon that because you've not only worked in an interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary area of, of both science and technology, but now you're moving into the commercialization realm, uh, negotiating with investors, looking for executives for your startup, all of those sorts of activities. How much of a challenge has that been in terms of dividing your time? And how interesting do you find that? So that's a really good question. I'm going to be really honest about it, actually. So if you ask me, you know, if I was, if I saw myself working on commercialization, I would say, no, I don't want to. It's not for me. I guess the reason was, I, you know, I, I felt, well, I'm, I'm good at, you know, making materials, looking at them under SEM, and this is my area. But then I guess it became something I couldn't avoid. I mean, we got so many phone calls from so many industries, so many investors. And, and honestly, Toy basically told one of the investors that, you know, I want to do this, but Layla doesn't. And, and I, I got pretty upset that I, I just felt like, is it because I'm afraid? And, and I think it's, it goes back to just, it's not something I saw myself doing because I didn't know how it was going to work because I didn't have the training for it. I still don't. But I guess the, what, what has helped is kind of surrounding myself with, with the right people uh, who, you know, people from McMaster Industry Liaison Office, they've been super helpful. And, and the people out externally who've, who've given me advice, it just it's come to, to things that I understand better. And I think if I understand it, I definitely get more enthusiastic and excited about it. So I guess for me, I just kind of had to do this because it just the opportunity was too good for me to say no. And now I'm really glad, you know, I've learned all these things. And at the end of the day, no matter how this goes, I've learned all those things. So I'm, I'm happy with that. Thanks for listening to this episode of Big Ideas for a Changing World. This show was produced by Jesse Park and edited by Dan Kim of the Faculty of Engineering. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcast or let us know your thoughts on social media. We're at McMaster Engineering on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. See you next time.